Tanse Sego Anibuju, Kweinim Deluisi Pampometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, laws, and governments. It's also about asserting living and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And ever since contact, our nations have been defending our sovereignty, our lands, and our peoples. At any point in time in our history and today, you can see grassroots warriors standing in defense of all of our rights, and they are literally critical to our survival as nations. A few weeks ago, before the Warrior Life podcast and I went on summer vacation, we had Skylar Williams and Micah Burning from Six Nations with us to talk about 1492 Land Back Lane and the long-standing issue of stolen lands. And in case you missed it, it's a good time to get all the background and check out the podcast. You can either catch it on this Warrior Life podcast or I've also uploaded it on YouTube for people who prefer to have the video. But we are back from vacation and we are starting the fall season with a refreshed look that better reflects the warrior spirit of our friends on this podcast. And wow, I almost can't believe it, but we actually have with us the Carl Dockstater, one of the hosts of One Dish, One Mic radio show, and I am such a huge fan. And for all of you podcast listeners who listen to this podcast, I also suggest you check this out on YouTube because his background is looking pretty sharp and sending some pretty strong messages right now. And for those of you who don't know Carl, He's a citizen of the Oneida Nation and still lives within his traditional territory. And his work has consistently shown his passion for history, art, medicine, and governance of the Haudenosaunee peoples and the Longhouse. What is so amazing is that he is able to take all of this knowledge and experience and his identity and make this a part of his show with his best friend, Sean Vanderclis from uh, who is a Mississauga from Curve Lake First Nation. The other amazing thing about Carl is that he is the recipient of the prestigious CJF CBC Indigenous Journalism Fellowship. He sounds like a perfect candidate to be arrested by the OPP, don't you think? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Carl, thank you so much for being here today. As you can tell, I'm a huge fan and I'm totally pumped. Yala, thank you so much for, for having me here. I'm also a big fan of your work. Well, this is great. I know you've got a lot going on right now. Who knows, the OPP could be getting ready to storm you as we speak for just being an Indigenous journalist. But let's talk about you first, and maybe you could introduce yourself the way you like to. Uh, that means my name's Carl. No, I'm just kidding. There's, there's, more, there's more to it than that. So, but that's that's my traditional introduction, and I I think that that's important in the context of everything, because I think that um, uh, reclaiming language is a part of reclaiming Indigenous perspectives, and it's tied to to reclaiming land, which is at the heart 
of what's happening at 1492 Landback Lane. And until about 72 hours ago, I was I was at the heart of being one of the storytellers, ensuring that there were Indigenous perspectives that were being reflected fairly in the media. Um, so can you share us a little bit about your path? Like, what was your journey to journalism? Did you always know that you wanted to tell the story of Indigenous peoples or the Haudenosaunee or the Oneida? I, I actually really came um, into journalism sort of sideways. Uh, what, what ended up happening is, is I live in a territory here in, here in Niagara where a lot of the mainstream voices acknowledged the fact that there weren't enough Indigenous perspectives. And so because of that, my, my uh, radio bestie, Sean Vanderclist and I were two people that really didn't know each other, and, but were engaged in, in local politics and in advocacy. And, and I had advocated for, uh, to stop the destruction of the Thundering Waters Forest in Niagara Falls. There were, there were a lot of causes that I was associated with volunteering at my friendship centers. I volunteered at the Niagara Regional Native Center for, for six years on their board. Uh, and I now work at the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center. Um, I'm a Friendship Center baby through and through, just like my bestie Sean there so but what ended up happening is is that yeah we were given a platform through a podcast network um the the podcast had a, a bit of a, a niche following and it took off pretty good and and eventually the radio station last year at the beginning of last summer they had a they had a, a void to fill and they said hey we got these guys that that seem to be okay at talking and they threw us on and and i mean since then the the amount of attention that we've gotten has been amazing um, but especially what we've been able to do with that attention by, by making sure that we're centering the voices of our community members and centering the voices of, of people who have something that needs to be added to the public dialogue has been so crucial to the success of One Dish, One Mike. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have such a huge following. I mean, I see people talking about it all over social media. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, especially in the Native community, and I, I even hear um, Native people south of the artificial border, of course, um, talking about it because it's it's unique. There's really nothing else out there like it. So, I mean, where did you guys get this idea? How did you come up with it? Well, the, the show itself, One Dish, One, One Mike, is named after the One Dish, One Spoon agreement. And I mean, in, if, if I had to summarize that agreement in one word, I would say reciprocity. The idea that, that you're not just taking from the land, that, that it's a give and take relationship. So it's the philosophy of the show as well that, that we're not just we're not just trying to be famous for the sake of being famous. We're not just trying to, you know, get get likes or clicks or retweets or anything like that. What we're really trying to do is we're trying to offer something to the public dialogue. And then we're trying to take things from the pu public dialogue and, and use them in our platform as a way to, to circulate messages that traditionally haven't been circulated. Uh, and that that success, or I think the success of the show has been a product of the fact that I mean, we resemble a traditional radio show in a lot of ways, uh, but but the things that we do differently are the things that really stand out. Well, and one thing I really like about it is that it just reminds me of, you know, back in the day, you can go to, you know, all different kinds of reserves, even remote reserves, and you know there's going to be a res radio there. And inherently, there's this one guy or two guys who run the res radio station, and they have these you know, amazing conversations about things. And they're doing this all live, like literally off the top of their head. And it's just so warm and engaging, but at the same time, informative. And I feel like you bring that, that sense of, you know, res radio into 
like, you know, podcasting and, and other radio stations. Well, one of my favorite Haudenosaunee uh, radio personalities is actually Janet Marie Rogers. And she, she did a, a podcast series and, and it was broadcast on CBC called Indians on the Airwaves. And, and I think that, I think that it, before anybody gets behind a microphone, I think they should give that series a listen because it, I mean, it goes all the way back to like radio free Alcatraz and like John Trudell and like those guys that, that, I mean, they literally took over an Island and took over a radio station and, and used that as a platform to broadcast things that, that people just had not heard. People were like, we did what to the indigenous people of, of this continent. <laughs> so that was the beginning of it. Um, in that series, she, she talks about Northern radio and that, uh, like that scene in smoke signals, you know, like, Oh, make sure you grab a carton of milk on your way home. <laughs> <laughs> like, kind of stuff. So for better, or for worse, there's elements of that in one dish, one mic. Uh, so, but I, I do think that indigenous radio is, is special. I think that indigenous media is special. What, what you do, what we do. Um, I also think that, that there's not enough of it. So it's really important that people like you and I have these conversations and, and do what we can. Yeah, and the other thing I really like about it is that it's independent. It's free in the sense of, you know, just like Res Radio, it's not controlled by a corporation. It's not controlled by a government and, you know, in many circumstances that we're actually free to say what we want. We can talk about what, you know, mainstream media might consider radical. We can talk to the people on the ground, maybe people who aren't elected or famous or something like that, and get the stories of all of our people out there in unique and creative ways. In some ways, it's, you know, very serious. In some ways, it's, you know, social justice advocacy and promoting movements. In others, it's a bit of comedy. And for some, it's just kind of like a mix of everything. And, you know, I think that's what's really great about your show is that literally everybody can find something in there to enjoy. And the fact that you guys just have endless, endless content it just amazes me because I always have to prepare so much for my show. How, I mean, is it as easy as it appears to you when we listen to these radio shows or do you also have some challenges? No, I, I think I think preparation is a big is a big part of it. Uh, it. It gets easier. I mean, we've been on now for a year and podcasting for three years previous, so we've almost got five years of media experience. Um, but but I think preparation is so important. And you and I both know, and I know that you've been in a position where you say something publicly, and someone is going to you could say something perfectly, but you you take one misstep, you say one thing that's slightly off color or that that uh, is maybe even a misrepresentation of your intention, and that becomes the headline. So preparation is, is such an important part of it because especially when, I mean, it's, you know, people are almost tired of talking about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, but, but we have to continue to talk about it. We, we have to talk about the criminalization of our people that's, that's at the heart of, of what I'm going through right now. We, we have to talk about systemic racism, but there, there are just these fact checkers that are out there that they'll let, they'll let Doug Ford, you know, inflame the situation and criminalize indigenous people left, right, and center with his, with his hand-picked media posse of the, you know, dozen people or so that get to ask him questions. But if you or I says something out of turn, right, then, then we're going to be put on notice. Yeah, exactly. And when you're in a more casual format, it's easy also to forget to say something, to forget to have added one person or one specific issue or, you know, or people take a small clip of what you say and then only use that out of the larger explanatory context. And, you know, 
the, the tools of the haters and the trolls are endless, but you know, overall, I think, you know, we're surrounded by really good people. We can tell like you have a lot, you know, so much support, um, you and your podcast um, co-host. Um, but before we get to kind of, you know, what's happening on the ground, I, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your fellowship because people who aren't in journalism or the media or work in this area might not understand the significance of this fellowship that you and Sean got this year. I'm wondering if you can just talk about it and how it relates to what you're doing. Yeah, so this this is the first time that, that a fellowship was given to people with, with a podcasting background. And I, I think that was a deliberate choice, but I, I'll talk about the award uh, first before I talk about that. So the Canadian Journalism Foundation, is, as you and I both know, really seeks to aim and improve the, the effectiveness, the measure, the understanding, the, the media literacy of both journalism professionals, uh, but then people in and around and, and including people that consume journalism. So the Canadian Journalism Foundation has partnered with CBC Indigenous, which is just a, a, an extraordinary team. They're, they're sort of like the, the X-Men of, of journalism. Like you have all stars from like coast to coast to coast. I mean, uh, you know, Leonard Monkman and his street cred activism, sort of Red Rising magazine, bringing him into the CBC Journalism Fellowship. Jessica Deer, a past participant on, on your program, uh, just, just an all-star from Kahnawake and, and working on language revitalization and that sharp perspective. And then living, living next to Montreal, such a, such a hotbed of Indigenous issues. And I, I mean, I, could, you know, I, could, I guess I won't go through and list the entire team bit by bit, but, but Jorge Barrera is another one. Like he, he's just untouchable in, in the stories that he's managed to break open and, and the way that, that he's done traditional journalism. So CBC Indigenous and the Canadian Journalism Foundation partnered up. And because it's a fellowship, they're, they're looking to develop talent. So the adjudication committee got however many applications, but they got an application from Sean and I. It's the first time two people from the same media outlet have been selected, uh, but they picked us as, as a duo to receive this award. And, and yeah, we're, we're going to be mentoring directly under CBC Indigenous. We're going to get a whole month where the plan before COVID was to send us to Winnipeg, right, at, right to the heart of uh, Indigenous media, where so many great things are happening with Media Indigena and APTN and Again, CBC Indigenous is, is all out there. Um, they were going to send us to the heart of that territory that, that may be modified now because of, because of COVID, but they're going to put a month into us and they're going to give us the tools and the access that, that uh, you know, we may not have the privilege of some of the non-Indigenous journalists that are out there, mm -hmm. but they're investing in Sean and I so that we can become better storytellers. So, but this, this is the first year and I'll sort of finish where I started. This is the first year where it's really been the core of the journalism that we've done has been our podcasting background. And that's, that's the, um, the media that we built up before we got on mainstream radio was, was we had a podcast following. You have, a, as you know, a lot of freedom and flexibility with podcasting, which can be both a blessing and a curse. Uh, <laughs> But no, we were we were selected specifically for that purpose, and I'm very excited to improve our audio storytelling to to pick up more tools of traditional journalism. But I, again, I cannot wait to work with other members of of that phenomenal CBC Indigenous journalism team. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible opportunity! I mean, I started my podcast, you know, after years of listening to and sometimes being a guest on, you know, Rick Harp's Media Indigena. I mean, it was just a huge fan. I didn't even know when I used to appear on the show what really a podcast was, you know, as opposed to just being, you know, an interview in the media or commentary or something like that. 
But then, you know, you listen to his shows and how they've changed over the years. And it's like, this guy's been doing podcasting before people really even knew what podcasting was. And it's just so amazing that you get to work with people like that. And, you know, CBC Indigenous, um, you know, ha having Jessica on was incredible, her story. And we had Leonard on who like told us his life story, you know, and what he's trying to accomplish for people on the ground. And all of that is so inspirational. And it's just so awesome that they actually pick podcasters because podcasting is a different way of communicating. It's, it's more extended, you know, in some ways it can be more personal and there's so much freedom. And I'm just, you know, congratulations to the two of you because now you're going to go and get to work with all the people that are just so amazing and who have done such great work. And, and what I like about, you know, native people in any industry, whether it's education or journalism, is that for the most part, you know, there's always like a core group of people that you can get supporting you and promoting you and, you know, giving you, you know, the texting tips behind the scenes, like, whoa, maybe you should back off there, you know, like the kind of honest criticism that you wouldn't necessarily get from friends who say, oh, great job, you know, but people who give you, oh, here's what happened to me, you know, here's some tips so that it doesn't happen to you and really, you know, boost one another. And I think that's fantastic. I think, I just think you, you two are the perfect pick for this kind of award, uh, which makes me and leads me into this next question about how does that make you OPP's most wanted? <laughs> right. It, it's, uh, <laughs> It truly, it's truly baffling to me that, that I've been arrested and charged uh, just a few days ago, earlier this week. And it's directly related to, to our coverage of 1492 Land Back Lane. Like, it, I always knew covering this story, and especially immersively covering this story by spending an entire week at the camp, I always knew that there was a risk. But I, I still, it's been several days. I mean, I've talked to now dozens of people about these charges and it's still, it still is baffling to me that, that, that I've been charged. So I don't know if I'm the best person to explain why I've been charged because it, it really makes no sense to me. It, it, it seems like um, that the values of the OPP and the values of a justice system that would stand behind these charges are pretty bankrupt. Oh yeah, totally. Well, maybe you can give us a little bit of background. Like, you know, we were watching um your tweets and some of your short videos that you were doing on social media which thank you for doing that by the way because for those of those of us who can't travel there or have other obligations we want to hear it from the people on the ground you know the mainstream media is trying to do better in their reporting but they they are never really there living it on the ground. So maybe you can tell a little bit about, you know, what you were doing there and, you know, who you were engaging with and then what led up to your arrest. Yeah. So our, our coverage of, of 1492 land back lane goes, goes all the way back to July 19th when you, you already spoke with Micah and you spoke with Skylar and you spoke with others and we were we were alerted by people in our network that something was happening there so as soon as we found out which was the day after sean and i immediately went up to 1492 land back lane and we we got a take of what was happening and we realized this this is a real story we were familiar with Gunnestado before and what happened at, at douglas creek in that reclamation and we understood that that the status of six nations land is very much unresolved i mean that that's an understatement in a bit uh, so in between July 20th, the first time that I went there, 
And then August 23rd, when I spent a week and actually lived on site, I traveled up. I worked it out that I actually traveled up 15 on 15 different occasions. Plus, Sean traveled up on, on multiple occasions. So we, we were there two, three times a week for a long period of time. Um, the, uh, a lot of the coverage we did was, was supported by Bell Media. We did a story for Canada Land. There's a really great podcast that's, that's out there, uh, Jesse Brown in Canada Land. This is, this is right in their wheelhouse, right? Like covering stories that don't get a lot of coverage. So I would really encourage people to go and check out that podcast. Uh, but we went and, and we covered this story, even with us traveling up there two to three times a week, even with Six Nations having two independent media newspapers, the, uh, uh, the Turtle Island News and the other paper that's there, uh, even with the Hamilton Spectator and CHCH and APTN being there, there still was a vacuum of coverage. So that led to me uh, making an arrangement with my employer, the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center, to, to allow me to go up for the week to document and chronicle the story. Um, and so I spent, I, I spent a week going up. Uh, we happened to have Brandy Morin, another phenomenal reporter that was on our radio show right before I went up. So I actually got tips from her on the air about how to identify myself as a journalist, how to protect myself as a journalist, how to make sure that I wasn't crossing any lines when I was there. I talked to her, talked to other people. So I was, I was very careful, but I was also very immersed in the story. And as more veterans, more senior, journalist veterans more senior than me can can say when you're on site in a location um you're going to end up doing a lot like because i was physically living there i mean i'm i'm eating with the people that i'm covering i'm i'm sharing stories with people that i'm covering if if skylar's telling a joke it's not like oh i can't laugh because it would look like i'm you know i'm supporting you or or whatever i mean i i was there and i was very much a part of what was happening was i actively assisting what they were doing absolutely not that's, that's what I understood to be the line. I wasn't making signs. I wasn't helping fundraise. Um, I had a lot of access at a lot of points, uh, but I never did anything to cross the line. And, and when I made that last video on the Saturday, August 29th, that I posted on One Dish, One Mic on our, on our Twitter feed and on our Facebook page, probably the best places to follow us, uh, I, I thought, okay, well, you know what? I got through this week. It was heavy in the editorial content. I, I really talked about how the people there were, were hoping that they wouldn't be arrested and how, in my opinion, from having spent the week with them, they're people of peace. They're living our values as Haudenosaunee people of, of good-mindedness, the, the Gatni Gulio, the strength, the Gazanstansla, and, and of the peace, the Skana. And so I reflected upon all of that in my video. Uh, made a joke about being winded from playing lacrosse and I wonder you know was was that it was because oh. when I'm playing lacrosse right I'm technically not doing journalism so so I don't know um, what I do know is that it, only a couple of days later I was contacted by a detective constable from the OPP by email at my one dish one mic email address and they asked me to call them I called them up and they said they intended to charge me um, I explained that I was a journalist at that time which I thought that was going to be it. I thought, you know, okay, this is a misunderstanding. No big deal. So, hey, I'm a journalist. You know, I have a show with Bell Media. I do work with Canada Land. Uh, we're, we're independent journalists through one dish, one mic.com. And I thought everything was taken care of only to discover that, that nope, they, they intended to press charges. Um, I wisely went and got a lawyer who advised me um, not to give them any information, which I didn't do. They went and charged me the next day. And, and now I'm, I'm an indigenous man with, who's been accused of criminal charges. And that's problematic on so many levels. Well, yeah, so many levels. I mean, even the smallest charges uh, can end up being life sentences for people. We know the criminal system, we know the stigma attached, 
We know the effect it has on employment, insurability, the ability to sit on even not-for-profit boards, the ability like to basically work in our communities with children, for example. I mean, there's just run-in elections. There are so many things that that one charge, no matter what the public might think about the gravity of the charge, can actually impact our lives. And so, you know, you've got that, you know, life sentence that are attached to charges. But then on the other hand, you also have, you know, not only are they trying to prevent Native people from protecting their own territory, but Native people from reporting on people protecting their own territory. And, you know, given the fact that mainstream media are not about to sit there every day and get updates about what's going on and talk to all of the people on the ground on a regular basis, like indigenous media and journalists would do, they're, they're basically stopping us from getting public support, which is what happens when you report what's happening, because that's, that's all indigenous journalists are doing. You're reporting on what's happening so that not only do our people know, but the world knows because it's that pressure from the public that not only you know puts egg on the face of government and law enforcement but forces change that really highlights just how much the public really doesn't support this continued genocide and oppression and dispossession of indigenous peoples so and it's not like either the opp or any level of government doesn't know that that's the impact they know very well how even a small charge could potentially impact your life. So I'm so glad you have a lawyer. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a lawyer, you know, it's not just pro-lawyer thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but honestly, too often, we're so, you know, depending on what our cultural protocols are, you know, you want to be friendly, you want to be helpful, you want to show law enforcement, you know, we're not doing anything wrong here. And they do can and do use everything you say against you. So I'm very glad that um, you did that. So what happens now? What's the next step? Do you have a court appearance that you and your lawyer have to go to? Yeah, so that's that's what sort of, uh, I mean, speaking to what, what you just mentioned, the choice that I had to make and one of the most serious conversations I had with my lawyer is that the the best thing for me legally right now is not to be talking to you to tell you the truth you you probably know that as a lawyer that that really I shouldn't be I shouldn't be doing all this media and I shouldn't be talking to people but the real conversation that I had with with Emily Lamb and, and Danny Kastner the um the lawyers who are, who are helping me right now the real conversation that I had with with Emily and Danny was that I believe that this is a form of silencing and that this is a form of the OPP saying that this is not something that we want spoken about. And that, that speaks directly to the definition of criminalization. Criminalization is making something that's not criminal, which is telling a story and making it into a criminal act by, by charging an Oneida man from Niagara Falls, who, like, honestly, I should be way down the list of people covering this story. I just... I just happened to cover it because there's a vacuum there and and I think that ignorance thrives in a vacuum so I've been trying to supplement with as much information from an indigenous perspective as possible and it's not like this hasn't happened before in other places so look at what happened in Wet'suwet'en territory where heavily armed essentially militarized RCMP go in and prevent 
you know, people from accessing their own lands, prevent people from leaving, prevent people from filming, reporting, uh, you know, essentially hoard, herd journalists into a specific area for hours and not let them report. I mean, all of these things are against Canadian laws, Canadian freedoms, Canadian uh, pr journalism protections. And, and it's, you know, like I said, it's not the first time that that's happened. And, and so what you have in, you know, happening across the country in these circumstances is, you know, Native and other journalists not being allowed to report on it, but another side of journalism allowed to report and interpret and commentate in any way they want to. So you get a really right wing spin on look at this terrible circumstance without being able to see the real story on the ground. And it really doesn't do Canadians any kind of favor. And you know, the first question that came to my mind when I heard about you being arrested was, wait a second, didn't a journalist named Justin Brake already go through all of this? Didn't he kind of win his court case that said he was allowed to do his job, that that's essentially the fundamental nature of journalism? And so I thought, you know, Mm, I have some questions about this charge. I sure hope he has a lawyer and I'm glad you do because I'm sure there'll be lots of arguments made. And um, of course, we're all supporting you in whatever ways we can um, and don't want to do anything to uh, mess up your scenario. But what do you think, you know, all of this in general, not specific to your case, but just in general for Indigenous people who engage in any kind of independent media, it could be videos, podcasts, blogs, um, you know, independent media, it could be mainstream media. What do you, what kind of impact do you think this has in general on our voices and our ability to do our job? Oh, it's, it's silencing Indigenous voices. Uh, I think I think you and I were both very active in the Idle No More movement, mm -hmm. and what happened in Idle No More was was it democratized Indigenous voices, and and really that was the beginning of my media career was that was that I was on the other side of the camera a couple times out of, really out of default again I've never been I've never been the guy that rushes to the front of the room and says hey look at me it's <laughs> it's been that you know hey let's let's put Carl up there he he generally knows what he's talking about he knows us. So the, the media has been democratized by social media and by movements such as I Don't Know More. And so for the OPP to come in and to make the determination of what is and isn't journalism, like could there be an organization less equipped than Canada's second largest police force to make a determination on what is or isn't media, especially in an indigenous context? Like what, what authority do they have to, to even decide where the lines for me for journalism stopped and started that to me that that's that's ridiculous and and it's it's so frustrating oh my gosh it is so frustrating and i'm just going to tell you about a tweet which may or may not relate to your situation but i did remind people that the Ipperwash inquiry you know investigated the opp and their actions about the shooting of unarmed peaceful land defender Dudley George and this whole concept of you know there's this myth about a few bad apples in the OPP but generally they're all good guys but in fact you know this inquiry which was very legal had lots of research and evidence before it said no in fact 
racism against First Nations people in the OPP is quite widespread. And here's the thing about racism, because it wasn't just systemic racism. We're talking about actual anti, you know, native racism that that doesn't just go anywhere overnight. It, and, and they haven't taken any real substantive steps to address that. So I don't think for a minute that the OPP is somehow a new and refreshed organization and it's vetted its few bad apples. And no, we are still dealing with, you know, systemic racism in terms of their systems, but also from individual officers who you'll remember from Ipperwash were, hey, let's go get those effing Indians. Let's just do these effing Indians big time. That kind of attitude and those people that were saying that, are they still there? Are they still spreading this attitude? And what a challenge that presents to us because, you know, one of the things I really want to pick up on what you said and what Skylar has said and Ellen Gabriel has said and Micah has said, basically all the Haudenosaunee people that I've ever talked to on this podcast or anywhere, they always center their activities on what they explained to me as the great law of peace. That their, their whole mission is to have peaceful relations, peace in their families, peace in their communities, peace in their nations, peace amongst other nations. And that this is never about criminality or danger to anybody. And what's happening at 1492 uh, Landback Lane from everything that people have said who are there and from what's being reported, that, that's all you see. I mean, you literally see people eating, having concerts, engaging in lacrosse. I mean, the creator's game. I, I, I don't see anything other than peace and culture happening there. And I mean, you were there for a week. Did you see anything other than that? No, and, and it's exactly why I went for a week. It's, you know, I didn't think I was ever going to find the stash of, of AK-47s or whatever Pierre Legault thinks that, that our people are doing in these uh, peaceful uh, peaceful actions. But but that was it. I mean, I, I there's a piece coming out right now that I'm working on that will be released to the Border United Friendship Center that, that really chronicles and, and documents my time there. But but I'll uh, I'll I'll let you sort of know what it's about a little bit and and really it it centers around around food it centers around music it centers around the the artist revitalization that, that's happening there there are so many great people that that i would love to tell you are active participants in, in the camp but i won't because again i you know this podcast could become could become evidence as we saw with the criminalization of skylar williams where where he was named as a defendant solely on social media posts uh so as much as social media is democratizing us, it's also been used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's the saddest part is that there, so here I am and I'm presenting a journalistic perspective and it's from, uh, I am trying to of course base it on on our teachings, the great law of peace and trying to tell those stories. Uh, but, but a lot of the media, if people were really chronicling what was happening 24 seven in 1492 land back lane, it's, it's a bunch of great human interest stories about people singing social songs and I mean, we, we had a gentleman come in and, or I, maybe I shouldn't even reveal the gender. We had a man or a woman of unknown height, age, or physical characteristics <laughs> that came to the camp and, and they made kebabs and, and they were a non-indigenous person. They were an ally, but that food was, was such good medicine. Like just, just the idea that they had prepared this food from scratch. They had old family recipes. They, they put like little pita chip crumbles in their salad. 
like and and so these are the types of things this is what this resistance looks like is is it looks like it's delicious it looks like it's it's the sound of beautiful music and it's the sound of amazing artists there's great artists there's photographers on the site and and the idea that that this that this is crime uh, this is this is what I intend to use my platform for is to really challenge that notion that somehow this this is a criminal act. Yeah, well, and you know, even the sign that you have, you know, behind you about being criminalized, you know, I, I think it really speaks to a much larger history that we have as Indigenous peoples that, you know, everything about our identity and our being has been criminalized since contact whether it was our ceremonies and dances were outright criminalized, whether it was the ability to move off of the reserve, that was criminalized. Our ability to, to not, you know, to educate our kids in our own languages and systems, that was criminalized. You could go to jail if you didn't send your kids to residential schools. I mean, our, now our poverty, which stems directly from all of these genocidal acts, is criminalized. If you're homeless on the street, you can end up in jail. If you suffer from addictions, you can end up, from, if you steal food, you know, you can end up in jail. So everything about us is criminalized, but they don't even just leave it at that. Our traditional ways of sustaining ourselves is also criminalized. So no, we can't have our land because it would be criminal for you to occupy and, and defend those lands. You can't hunt and fish without it being controlled and criminalized. You can't engage in the traditional tobacco, tobacco trade or traditional forms of gaming. That's all criminalized. And, and then they take it a step further. You know, when it, when it comes to the ludicrous and the ridiculous, then they start referring to us as, you know, contraband and terrorists and organized crime and really scaring the public. And it's not just you know, the former conservative federal government that did that too, you know, threats to national security, but every level of government, especially law enforcement, has in some way portrayed us as dangerous, as criminals, as um, needing the public needing protection from us. And what I do appreciate about social media and independent Indigenous journalists and media is that we have the counter story. We have actually what's happening on the ground and I have met countless Canadians who've said, you guys don't seem really dangerous to me. You know, like it, none of what we've been told or taught in school is true. None of what we see in the mainstream media is an accurate portrayal. And so I think that although you face these challenges and criminal charges, I think, you know, just any engagement with law enforcement is the most terrifying thing in the world. But, you know, the potential of, of these criminal charges is a significant challenge. The work that you do to make sure that our people know the real story, that no, we're not criminals and we're not dangerous. And no matter what the label is that you put on us, radicals or you know whatever it is, um, we're, we're good, we're good. We're just defending one another in a peaceful way. And like you said, the resistance is delicious. I feel like you should do a whole show on that, how the resistance is delicious. <laughs> But at the same time, it also helps in our solidarity and our social justice movements and our people's movements that we have with other groups like uh, Black Lives Matter and anti-poverty groups and human rights groups and women's groups and, and all of these other Canadians and Americans who are working towards social justice to see the, the truth of the matter. And so the job that you do is just 
it's so critically important. And I, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I know everybody else is literally hanging on every tweet you send to know that you're okay and that nothing else has happened. Because I'm assuming that there is, when you were arrested or charged, that there's some kind of condition probably that you're not allowed to go back to that land. I mean, I don't know, and you don't have to talk about it or not, but um, that's usually what they do. So even if the charges never go through or they drop them later, they have been able to prevent you from going to the territory and reporting on it. So just generally speaking, that's what tends to happen. No, I, I am, I'm willing to speak about it. Uh, and it, I want to touch on a couple of things that, that you hit on just now. And, and that I, I did another, uh, Sean and I did another podcast with Canada land and we were critical of the OPP we were talking about the loss of life that was a direct result of the fact that police officers carry firearms. All of them do, mm -hmm. including, including the police officers that raided 1492 land back lane. And at the heart of the podcast that we did with Canada land was, was that Sean and I are, are terrified of police when a police officer comes. And, and I think that primarily without generalizing too much, I think that for non-indigenous people, when a police officer comes, I think it's like, Oh, great. A sense of relief. Okay. The cops are here. And, as indigenous men, Sean and I are, are it has the opposite effect. When, a, when an officer rolls into the room, I go, oh my God, did I, you know, am I going to be charged with something? I don't even think I've done anything, you know, like if I, you know, am I doing something wrong and, and or flashing back to, to even worse. I really, I really want to honor Dudley George and, mm -hmm. and I want his family to know that, that some of the work that we're doing is, is a direct result of the fact that, that I was a teenager living in London when when Dudley George lost his life, London is is the the major urban center that's that's close to Kettle and Stony Point First Nation and, and the Upper Wash Reclamation, um, and and I want I want to be very respectful to that family because their their loss was completely unfair and it was completely a product of the unchecked power of the police at that time. And it's disputed about whether Mike Harris did or didn't sort of direct them to go in. And, and you know, I'm not going to split hairs about, about that. But, but it's clear that, that he had a bombastic anti-Indigenous tone that increased the criminalization of Indigenous people. And it's clear that Doug Ford similarly is quick to criminalize our people. And that the harm that's coming to me and my family, I attribute directly to the Premier making those political comments, to going and saying, well, these few bad apples, this you know 99.9% .9 of good indigenous people uh, that, that 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 serves as a de facto way of, of directing the directing the police so I wanted I just wanted to touch on that and, and I did want to push the fact that the Canada land while it's not indigenous media that again they set it as a priority for us to talk about the police because uh, again I think I think the police are silencing me. I think they're silencing my perspective. I think that they don't want this perspective out. They may drop these charges, but but yeah, to go back to originally what you said, I you know, I think I need to go back. And what's what's deeply unfair right now is I have to have a conversation with with my two daughters and I have to have a conversation with my wife about how that's going to affect me. And since I'm strictly going back in a journalistic capacity, I shouldn't have to have that conversation. But that's a conversation that I have to have now where I was trying to be involved in an honorable profession 
and trying to do things in the right way. And the system still found a way to criminalize me. And that cannot be detached from the fact that, that I'm Anyata Aga, that I'm an Oneida man. Exactly. And the sad thing about it is it's in every situation, every time there's a situation where Indigenous peoples are peacefully protecting their waters or their lands or a particular habitat. It's always this. It's always um, violently removing them, arresting them, charging them, whether or not they drop them later, confiscating um, uh, vehicles, confiscating cameras. It's it's to me it's harassment and it's something that now even social media is not even safe i mean we we have no choice i mean i'll, I'll probably never stop engaging on social media because it's the best way to reach out to our people when we can't be with them all the time but to know that they they can and do use everything you say on social media against you is something that you know I don't know that the everyday Canadian really thinks about that or has to worry that you, just your very identity, you know, Ooh, I'm a Canadian. I bet you, you know, they're watching me today or I better be careful about what I say. No, but for native people, you can be darn sure that their terror watch list and that their activity reports and that their hotspot reports and that their um, briefings with natural resource extraction groups and the RCMP and CSIS and I mean even Indian Affairs has been involved in the surveillance of our people. It's just it's been so omnipresent that it has a real impact on our lives and you know after Justin Brake won his case, I don't know, I feel like I'm, I've been a broken record talking about this issue that, you know, he won his case. The issue settled. It should have been settled because these are charter protected rights for journalism, by the way, for Canadians who don't know that. But, um, you know, the freedom of the press and the critical nature of the press in a so-called democracy to be able to report freely and without interference is one of the things that it's a signal. It's one of the first signals for a country that's moving away from democracy and, you know, to tyranny or fascism or whatever versus a country who values democracy. And it looks like, you know, this issue has been solved years ago, but not for Native people. It seems to be Native people are still regularly prevented from engaging in journalism when the issue is a hot contested issue which I think in every scenario, it relates to land and protecting land. And um, it's, just, it's just so critically, critically unfair and now is going to have an impact on you and your family and, and everything that you do. And I'm just wondering, I always ask this um, of people on the show because there's a lot of people that listen to this, you know, native people from north and south of the artificial border here on Turtle Island, but also Canadians listen to this, students listen to this, university students, high school students, you know, teachers, educators, human rights groups, lawyers, you name it, listen to this podcast. Is there anything that we can do for you right now or for like in general for journalism? Well, what, what I would, would, people have been really generous in reaching out and offering to support me in, in very different ways and and i'm very i i really have to sort of do the hometown thing and give a shout out to niagara uh because members of the indigenous community were quick to rally behind me 
and, and members of the non-Indigenous community for the most part have, have been very supportive. So what when people are, are reaching out to me and asking me how they can support me, th that's why that's really why I wrote this on the wall behind me, that what, what I would like people to do is to use whatever means they have to help decriminalize Indigenous people. And that, that's a word that I think is not used in the public canon enough. So what I would ask people to do is if you don't know what criminalization is, uh, understand it. Understand that, that um, when a homeless person is given a vagrancy ticket, it does nothing to resolve the underlying issue of the fact that we as a society have allowed that to happen. Similarly, with Indigenous people, we, we represent over 30% of people that are, that are in federal custody right now, and we represent only 5% of the population, so we're six times higher. What's even worse is, is that for youth and women in federal custody, it's almost 50% of the population that, that are Indigenous youth or are Indigenous women. That's criminalization. So what you can say is like, oh, if, you know, if an Indigenous person stole a car, shouldn't they go to jail? And, and it's just not that simple. Did, did somebody commit a crime because they didn't have the means to support themselves? Did somebody do something to reach out because they have unresolved trauma that in almost all cases is a direct result of the residential school system, the 60s scoop system, the ongoing millennial scoop system. You've talked many times to Cindy Blackstock about the funding in inequities and funding inequality for Indigenous children. Are these things a product of that? That's how we're criminalized. We're put in a no-win situation. And, and, and as simple as a journalist going to cover a story because there, there's not mainstream media uptake on the story. And now that Indigenous is, is extra vulnerable because he happens to be an Indigenous journalist. So what I'm asking people to do specifically to help me is, is to understand the criminalization of Indigenous people. Look at how it applies to me personally. Look at how it applies to the story of 1492 Land Back Lane. Look at how it applies to, to again, our, our women and our girls and our two-spirit people, and our queer people, and our questioning people, and, and our intersexual people, and our asexual people, and, and all of the vulnerable people that we have in our society, and how that affects them. So I'm, I'm going to be okay. If I have to go to jail forever <laughs> for this, I'll do it. Uh, you know, I'll, I've had that conversation with my family that, that I'm going to do what I need to do to protect this. But I have the support and the means and a strong family and a strong Oneida clan family and, and people behind me that, that have my back. But what I would really like people to do is to look at people in situations that are similar to mine yeah. and see what you can do to raise attention about their vulnerabilities. Because there are people that just don't don't have a Bell Media standing behind them and don't have a Canada land to get their platform out on. Don't have a radio show every Sunday. Uh, and don't have friends with with podcast shows like Warrior Life to help get the word out. So those are the people that need the help right now. Well, of course, you know, like this is this is exactly what we're here for. This is exactly what you know. Whenever you have any kind of gift or any kind of skill or any kind of uh, forum or voice. That's, this is exactly what it's for because you don't see anyone talking to all of our people who are incarcerated in prisons or in youth corrections or in group foster homes, you know, or living on the street. And, and those are the voices that aren't being heard. And, and so thank you. Thank you for being so generous and, and for calling on all of us to recognize that because criminalization is a thing and then it ends up being a life sentence. 
and we all know that you know kids go in foster care and then they end up in youth corrections and then they end up in prison and then you know can they get a job later on can they fend for themselves later on and we've got we've got to stop that we've got to stop criminalizing us just because we're indigenous and just because we're suffering the intergenerational trauma from ongoing genocide like none of this is our fault and there are so many human ways to deal with all of this so thank you for your voice thank you for your love and your compassion and your generosity about calling on canadians to really help these you know our brothers and sisters without any voices and and to stop it in its tracks especially during a pandemic which puts all of us at, at much greater risk and you know thank you for taking the time to do this i know that i mean you're probably 10 times busier now with everything going on and uh, you know i really appreciate all of your words around the haudenosaunee and the oneida and the great law of peace and that really we're just trying to find a peaceful way uh to live with one another in a just way so that our rights and our land rights and our ways of being are are respected you know thank you for your show and everything you do and the support that you give to people that they will never see you know all the behind the scenes stuff you know that that you do for people thank you and what i will do in this uh, for our podcast listeners is I'll post a link to um, you know the announcement about your fellowship so that people who are aspiring Indigenous journalists can can see what's out there uh, a link to your show because what's great is that online you can kind of go through the shows of One Dish One Mic and and listen to some of those stuff um, your Facebook I think is probably one of the best places for people to be engaged in and updated on what's happening with One Dish, One Mike, uh, with you and Sean. And we will keep trying to keep the pressure up. We'll keep trying to keep people informed about what's going on. And Carl, uh, please don't, you know, um, have any hesitancy about reaching out to any one of us. You know we're all supporting you and your family and your nation on this and other issues. Um, me personally, thank you for what you're doing because you're not just standing up for the Haudenosaunee. When you do this, you stand up for the Mi'kmaq and the Wet'suwet'en and all the other peoples who have been engaged in this battle uh, forever. So thank you. I really appreciate um, everything that you've shared here today. And I, I, I don't take it lightly, the impact that it has on you and your family. Thank you. That's, that's very kind. Yeah. Well, um, so thank you also to all of our podcast listeners. I appreciate you listening. Um, check out our new logo, how we are restyled, which is perfect because we have Carl, um, OPP's most wanted for some reason. <laughs> I feel like that, that should be either that the resistance is delicious or OPP's most wanted. I don't know really how to style this podcast, but you know, in all seriousness, you kind of have to laugh about the ridiculousness of how we're treated at times. So thank you. I'll post the links to all of this. I'm also going to upload this to YouTube. For those of you who have been saying that you want to see um, this on, on YouTube videos for your classes or whatever, um, one of the best ways that you can help is everything that Carl said, but also sharing all this information. When Carl writes a story, when someone from CBC Indigenous writes a story about what's happening, share it amongst your links, teach it in your classes. Um, you know, amongst your human rights groups, your social justice advocacy groups, because it's by sharing the information that we get it out there. And social media is powerful for doing that. 
So take as many actions as you can to help us with social justice and earth justice in this territory. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks again, Carl. Until next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliyad. Thank you.